Our scripture reading before the sermon is 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer as an, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Forward to the time when you and I will switch roles. <laughs> good to see you all tonight. Everybody doing okay? 50-50, that's fine. It's like, heard of Christmas in July, but never July at Christmas, right? And uh, 70 degrees is nice out there today. Well, we're at familiar territory uh, because we're coming to the close of a, another sermon series we've got tonight and next week. And, you know, we've been spending time in First Peter on our Sunday nights trying to navigate the concept of how do Christians uh, live in a world? How are they to live in a world that is becoming predominantly non-Christian, meaning the worldview of the collective society is not thinking as Christians would think or view the world? Um, this was common in Peter's day because Christianity was a new um, thing that had hit the scene. And in a Greco-Roman philosophical world, Christianity was not like every other uh, way of thinking. And so Christians were facing a lot of difficulty and suffering because uh, of their differences in the way that they viewed the world. And Peter was writing this letter to a dispersed group of Christians saying, here is how you're going to navigate this life uh, as a Christian in a non-Christian world. You know, the whole thrust of the letter is how you live in this non-Christian culture, but living in a non-Christian culture will bring you a certain set of difficulties or challenges. These difficulties, Peter calls them suffering. And in spite of the attempt of these difficulties or sufferings at the hands of um, maybe people that are not sharing your worldview to destroy your faith, these sufferings, actually Peter presents as being in the hand of God used to serve the faith of Christians. For us to be served by suffering and not just destroyed by suffering requires the one thing that Peter says at the very beginning of the book to get us ready. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, you need to prepare your minds. Meaning you got to get your mind in the right place, the right frame of mind, to be ready to walk into what life is going to be like in a non-Christian world as a Christian. And here's the great challenge for us. Is our mind really ready? Are we really ready in the way that we view the world, the way that we think about God, the way that we think about others, and the way that we think about ourselves? Or is our mind ready to navigate and walk in a world that doesn't ultimately or overarchingly agree with us? And so... For a long, long time here in our country, we have lived very comfortably in our culture as Christians. And this has caused many, many Christians in our culture 
to allow the foundational truth of Christianity, the foundational truths, to sort of deteriorate. We haven't had to really uh, make sure our foundational block has been solid because we've had the scaffolding of culture around us to hold the building up, so to speak. And as that scaffolding is coming down, what we're looking at is saying, what are we really standing on? And a lot of what we've been standing on is beginning to crumble. But the great news for us is this. We're alive. We're here. We're able to be a participate and do something about it. We're able to be active. And so we turn to Peter, and what we've seen so far in the first seven parts of this, le- of this series is that Peter starts with by anchoring us in chapter 1 to an unshakable hope. There is only one hope in the world that no doctor, that no family member, that no friend, no employer, nobody can take from you. There's one hope in the world that comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you and I are going to a perfect place and we will become those perfect people that we long to be someday promised to us in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the only hope in the world that cannot be taken away from you. And Peter reminds us to anchor our lives into that unshakable hope. Then he sets us on our calling and our purpose to be obedient people to God and priestly people to the world and to the church. He establishes a lifestyle for us. He says Christians are not to make a difference in the culture by being triumphalistic, meaning going out there and just dominating everybody. But rather, he says, we're to be called to be submissive people, to learn how to work power from within and, have, have, and be people of reason, as he says in 1 Peter 3. And as we talked about the last couple of weeks, Peter prepares you for a path that is certain, and that's suffering. We will endure suffering if you are a true disciple of Jesus. And finally, he leaves us with uh, what we talked about last week and, and tonight and next week, and we'll be done, is some necessary practices that Christians, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to make a priority of these practices if you're going to do this. And last week we talked about making investments into what Peter calls one another. That you've got to be building up a one another in your life. The whole idea of Christianity being an isolated, you have your own quiet devotional time in the morning, you just go about your business having a privatized faith, is not from Scripture. It is not from Scripture. So we need to be building up a one another, and tonight we're going to be talking about what it really means to trust. You see, the heat of the moment is going to ask us, do we trust? And so tonight we're going to learn um, what is called our testimony, how we make witness to the world, witness to God, and witness to ourselves about what we believe, and that is found uh, in our trust. You know, when we suffer for being a Christian, the question is, what do we do? How do we respond when we suffer? And the indicator, I'm sorry, how we respond is the indicator of whether we really belong to God or not. And Peter's going to lead our thoughts on that tonight. Um, the framework, we could have done it several ways, but the framework for the lesson is, is pretty simple. It's in verse 19, this summary statement from Peter in this section. He says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So four quick things. We're going to see those who suffer. Number two, they entrust their souls. Number three, to a faithful creator. And number four, they are doing good. Let's look at this together tonight. The whole text is going to unfold into this idea. Let's start with those who suffer. Three things are revealed about Christian suffering in verses 12 through 19 um, that really need to stand out to you, okay? 
There's a lot of things that he says there, but I want to point out three very important things that kind of guide our mind when it comes to trusting God in the moments of suffering. The first one is that Peter speaks of suffering that it's a certain thing. There's certainty with it. In verse 12, he says, don't be surprised. Verse 17, he says, it is the right time for the judgment of God to come upon the household of God. It's the right time. Verse 19, he says that those who suffer according to God's will. And so there's a certainty to suffering if you are a disciple of Christ. Suffering, he says in verse 12, should not come upon us um, like it shocks us or surprises us. In fact, that word when he says that don't be surprised is the same word that you would use if you were at home, you know, maybe in your lounge pants and a t-shirt, you got your slippers on, and a guest shows up and they're ready to have dinner with you or something. You just, I wasn't expecting you, you know, right? And you're like, your house is a mess, you start shoving things in the closets and pretending like your house is always clean and you try to get something put together. He says, don't be shocked as if you had no clue this visitor was ever going to come. Suffering for a disciple of Christ. If discipleship with Jesus is bearing on your life, suffering will arrive. Someday, somehow, some way. Suffering also, he says, if it's certain, it's not avoidable. And this is where I would press on myself and us a little bit, that in our culture sometimes we do everything to to arrange our lives to avoid the concept of discomfort. We, We, in fact, go to great lengths to prevent any version of discomfort in our lives. And the way that the Bible talks about suffering says that it's certain. And so as you think about your own discipleship life, as you you walk with Christ, are there ways that we um, arrange our lifestyle so that we avoid suffering? This might be just veiling our beliefs. Um, It might be, um, you know, maybe changing or adapting some of our thoughts with who we're around. Maybe it's that we don't ever really spend time in quiet, meditative reflection, really developing conviction. We just flip-flop convictions. Whatever, you know, the group I'm in, what you guys believe, yeah, me too. And then we go to a new group, yeah, me too. And we don't really have our own convictions. That's kind of the telling of the time. But we avoid suffering in our culture so much. I think we do this because we've got a really shallow view of suffering. When I say suffering, oftentimes in my mind, I think pain, discomfort. That's about as far as I go. Don't like it. But I think we avoid suffering because we have such a shallow definition of what it really means. You see, suffering is oftentimes seen as something that we should avoid at all costs. And this only focuses on the experience of suffering. You know, the discomfort but not the purpose. And that's the second thing that we've got to learn. Not only is it certain, there's a purpose to suffering. Verse 12, he says, don't be shocked at the fiery trial that's going to come upon you. Now, this analogy has already been used by Peter in this book. 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about a fiery trial, and he says suffering um, works as the method God uses to first test what kind of metal you are. That's what, that's what heat is applied to test what kind of metal you are, and then also to refine the impurities out of you. Peter's already said that in chapter 1, that that the heat that gets applied to us, much like heat that's applied to gold, though it's tested by fire, will result in something that's beautiful. 
And so here he says, don't be shocked at the fiery trial that's going to come upon you because that fiery trial has real purpose behind it. To test you, to determine what you're made of, to reveal to you what you're really made of, and in the process to refine you, to rid you of the impurities. In verses 17 and 18, there's kind of this weird uh, text where Peter draws back from a Proverbs um, where he says in verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's saying judgment is on God's house. Now, what's strange about this is at first it sounds like he's talking about that, that coming day when Jesus comes and we all stand before him and we give account for our life. But this phrase is in the present active tense, meaning he's saying the suffering that we're experiencing Um, even by the hands of non-Christians, is in the hands of God as an act of what he would call judgment to be be refining us, to be saving us. That's why he says in verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, meaning the righteous go through difficulty to be saved. What he's saying is suffering is bringing refinement and challenge and difficulty to us, and in doing that, it's bringing us to the point where we're the people who are prepared for glory. If the righteous are scarcely saved, what's it going to be like for the ungodly and the sinner at that day to come? When we know the purpose of suffering, when discipleship bears on our life and we experience suffering and we don't avoid it, but we understand the purpose, we'll hang in there with it. But what kind of suffering, right? Here's the third thing about suffering you've got to know. Not only is it certain and it has a purpose, but it's also selective. Peter doesn't, doesn't just say any old uh, you know, suffering will do. Or just having a hard time will, will count. It'll, it'll refine you. That's not what he says. He's very selective about the kind of suffering that refines us. He says in verse 13 that we should share in Christ's sufferings. Verse 14, if we're insulted for Christ's name. On and on in verse 15 he says some other things as well, but we'll, let's get into this. You see, what Peter's doing is eliminating the kind of suffering that comes out of our own sinful life, the kind of experience we might have if we act selfishly or sinfully. So if you notice his list here, look down in verse, um, I think it's, yeah, verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, as an evildoer or a meddler. Now, when you hear that list, does anything kind of jump out? You know, is it, was it Sesame Street? Which one of these things don't belong, right? Is that right? My kids don't watch that, and I never watched it, so we just don't, I don't know. Which one of those don't really belong? What do you think? Which one? The meddler, right? Murder. Thief. Evildoer means someone of evil material that produces evil things. <laughs> That's pretty harsh, right? And then busybody. Strange, right? You see, the first two actually find themselves in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. They're there. Don't do these two. The third one is, don't be that person. Don't be evil, right? But the third one's kind of strange. In fact, it's a word that Peter sort of invented. He took a bunch of words and smashed them together to make up this word. Some of you might have meddler, busybody. It's hard for the translators to come up with a good word because, in fact, this, this word doesn't inherently have much sinfulness to it. Like, like it just, um, what it really technically means is to position yourself in authority 
over other people's matters. That's what that word means. To, to take yourself as like a steward, like position of authority over somebody else's business. And so they translate it busybody or meddler. You see, what I think Peter is doing, I don't think he's accusing the first century Christians as being murderers and thieves or even evil. I think what he's setting up is a context to receive the fourth one, which is Christians who now have a new worldview. This is how the world should be. This is who the Savior of the world is. This is who the God of the universe is. This is what's right and this is what's wrong. They've got a new worldview and they've taken that now and, and probably out of their zeal and excitement are going to every place in their community and their culture and saying, hey, I'm totally right now. You're way wrong. And they're placing themselves in authority over top of people and trying to smash Christianity down their throats. Are you following with me? I don't think he's accusing them of being murderers and thieves and evildoers. He's saying that, that sets up the context for you to understand what meddling really is. And we're seeing this happen in our culture right now. Can I give you one example? Just a minute. Christians are not suffering today because Starbucks has a red coffee cup. You're not suffering because Starbucks made a marketing decision. In fact, corporations make decisions, and they're legally bound to do this, to make profit for their shareholders. And if their marketing research team says, let's have a red cup because that will be more festive or sell more, you as a Christian are not... Now, we can lament the perceived idea that maybe Christmas is changing or people don't recognize Jesus as much, but did anybody see that video by this guy named Josh something that put that out? Are you familiar with the red Starbucks thing? This guy's a radical radical conservative. And when I mean conservative, I mean that not in the good, healthy way that we should think about in politics. I mean, he's radical fundamentalist. And he, you know what he wants you to do? He wants you to not care about the issue, but to get excited and like his Facebook page so that he can become a celebrity. Do you see what he's doing? He's positioning his own worldview on top of Starbucks and saying, I know what's right and wrong. He's meddling. And the suffering that he is experiencing in doing that is not real suffering. It's not. Okay? So what does he say really his suffering is? Suffering he's talking about is sharing with Christ. That means like fellowship, partaking with Christ in his sufferings. Um, verse 14 says, if we're insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16, when you wear the name of Christ, if you suffer, what he's saying is if you suffer because you are associating your life to Jesus. If you're saying, I'm walking with Him, I value Him, where He is, I am, I'm connected to Him, and people insult you for that, and ridicule you for that, mock you for that, scorn you for that, that's the kind of suffering. And suffering because you have a close association. So how do we respond when we suffer because of our discipleship to Jesus? He says that we're supposed to entrust our soul. Two really important words we've got to get to get this concept. The first one is the word soul. Now, um, the word soul is, is an old Jewish understanding, and we kind of applied the English word soul to it, but uh, over the course of many, many years using the English language, soul is kind of, it's hard to really grasp. Now, uh, I'll be the first to say that we as human beings, to explain mind, body, soul, spirit, um, we're drastically limited. But in all my reading and, and what I've dug into, the best, I think, modern word for the word soul would be our identity, who we are. 
the thing that makes you who you are. That's your soul. Um, that's the part of you that will live eternally. That's the part of you that um, is really who you are. And so when the Jewish people used the word soul, what they were talking about was the center of you. Um, like what really defines you as your worth, your value, who you are as a person. When I say, you know, what is your hope set on? What do you dream about? What do you want to be? How do you want to be seen? All of that is your, your gut, your soul, okay? So he's saying you take that soul, and we all have one. Everybody has a soul. That, that part of us that defines who we are, what makes us valuable, how we define ourselves, and are we worth something? That's our soul. And he says we all have one, and every one of us are entrusting that part of us to something. You remember what Jesus said about your soul? How awful it would be for us to forfeit our soul. He's saying you have a soul, and you are going to deposit that thing somewhere. And the way that we do that is we let things in, the, in our life determine our identity, our value, our worth, all of those things. That's our soul. And so we use things in our life to tell us what those are. In fact, every culture, and all, you go through all of history, every culture has a way collectively of defining people's soul or their worth or their identity or their value. Um, in most uh, Eastern cultures, it's defined by the family. And so if, you've got, if you come from a good lineage and you're part of a good family and you take care of your family, um, that identity and that worth means like you are a good person and what you do is good and you are to be valued because you've held into that family traditional value. Now, in Western culture, it started in Europe and now in America, we really define ourselves by productivity. You know, you can have a dad that is a super accomplished, maybe he's done amazing things, and he's, but we say, okay, what have you done? We value the human soul on productivity. And unless you are producing something that I'm impressed with, then you don't have much value. Now, here's what's interesting. Go, take your mind to our kids for a moment, our little kids. Um, from the time that they're born, what gives a baby value or worth? It has a soul, right? And how do we define that baby's soul? How do we define that baby's identity, that baby's value? It's not producing anything for us except things I don't want to touch, right? It's not bringing anything to my life that's like, oh, now I can use. You see what I'm saying? But that baby has a soul and that baby has an identity that's valuable. And from the time that child grows up, What's going to happen to that child is everything in culture, in our world, in our society is going to start trying to grab that person's soul and say, you'll be worth something if you become this profession. You'll have value if you get you know, a spouse and kids in this kind of house. If you attain to the cultural standards that we say are excellent, then you will have worth in your life. That's your soul. And Jesus says, fight tooth and nail for it. So what does he say to do with it? He says to entrust it. It's a financial term, meaning I'm going to take my soul, that which tells me I'm worth something, I'm valuable, and I'm going to take that thing, and I'm not going to deposit it into my career. I'm not going to deposit it into my relationships. I'm not going to deposit it into my productivity or my um, looks or my wealth. You see what I'm saying? I'm going to take what tells me I'm worth something, and I'm going to entrust it to the hands of God. 
What was the thing that happened in Genesis chapter 1 before sin entered the world and God made Adam and Eve? What did God say after he made Adam and Eve? It is, don't say good, very good. What did Adam and Eve produce? What did they accomplish? What was their resume looking like in Genesis 1? You see, Christianity is the only thing that can give your soul worth outside of you. Everybody else in the world is saying, prove to me you're worth something. And then you work so hard to try to do that, and when you fail, it crushes you. When you succeed, you get arrogant. Neither of them are good. But Christianity outside of you says, regardless, you're good. Especially as you come into Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So we take our soul and we fight the narrative of our culture that says you'll be worth something if you're impressive, you're accomplished, you do something. I'll like you then. And we stop fighting that ladder that will never climb because it's got slippery rungs. And we take our soul and we entrust it to the hands of God. Now look what Peter does here. Because he says you entrust your soul to who? This is the only time in the New Testament that God is referred to in the first person as a creator. He says, you entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Now, why didn't he say a faithful God, a faithful Savior? He said a faithful creator. Because from the very beginning, God has made us. He's faithful, he's loyal, he's trustworthy, he's proven himself, but he's our creator. That means he's, first of all, parental. He's made us. He cares for us. Just like you, if you have a child, you care for that child. You love that child regardless. Regardless, you love that child. God's our creator. But he's also sovereign. All things are in his hand. And so for our good, he is one that we can trust. How is God faithful in our suffering, right? So if we have a soul and we're fighting all the narratives of culture, we're going to hold on to this and we're going to trust it to the faithful creator how was God faithful? Look in verse 14. <clears throat> he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, which is where you now get your soul, your identity, your worth, if you're insulted for that, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God does what? It rests on you. We don't have time to unpack Romans 8, 9 through 17, but I want you to think, I want you to go read that tonight where he says in the presence of suffering is when you have evidence, when you know that the Spirit of God is with you. In fact, Paul would say to Timothy, who desires to live a godly life will suffer persecution. In the presence of suffering for your association with Christ is the evidence that God's presence is with you. Suffering is our opportunity to know God's presence is in our life and then to long for more of it, to ask for more of it, to see Him clearer, to know Him deeper. You see, when you suffer for entrusting your soul to this faithful Creator, and it's hard and it's difficult, it's in that moment that you say, God, make this clear for me. Give me more of you. I want to see more of you. Do you see how suffering at the hands of sinners is actually fueling a relationship with God? How brilliant of God to be able to do that. But then this last part, he says, that while suffering, we should entrust our soul to a faithful Creator, it's got kind of a weird ending here, right? Oh, and while doing good. Don't, you know, it's like, don't forget to do good while you're surviving the suffering. But for Peter, these are not two random Christian commandments. 
In fact, Peter this has this as one sentence, one thought. That you as a suffering believer entrust your identity to the one who made you because he said you're good regardless of what you've done. That you have value and love and worth. And in all that, while doing good. We've seen that the presence of suffering is a witness to us. That God is refining us for His glory and He's present in our life. But God isn't the only one who is witnessing to people in suffering. You and I can also be witnessing. You see, the doing of good, which means out of good fiber, producing good things. Out of good fiber, for the sake of the good of others, we do good regardless of circumstances. The continual doing of good, regardless of what we're facing, is the greatest witness of our trust. Trust in the faithfulness of God in suffering is the strongest witness we have to non-Christians. That in the face of mockery and slander, that I have entrusted every ounce of my identity, worth, and value to the hands of God and no other standard. That I hang in there when I suffer is the witness to Christians that I have something unshakable. And they'll be interested in that. Our willingness to stick with God is the evidence to ourselves to others that we believe that what we believe in and who we trust is who we have confidence in. Now think about this. This is the exact method that God used to communicate with force to us the truth of his love for us. Back in chapter 2, Peter said this, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Well, how did he walk? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, bore our sins in his body on the, on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Do you see what Jesus did? When he faced suffering, he said he didn't, re he didn't return violence for that. But in response to his suffering, he entrusted the one who knows all things and will judge all things correctly. And in doing that, in Jesus entrusting himself to God, saved us. Now let me try to make the parallel for you. When you entrust your soul to God in the midst of people who are trying to harm you for that, you're witnessing to them. and You're bringing to light that it's their sin that causes them to do that. And what they need is to entrust their soul to God as well. And if they would do that, they'll let go of the need to bash people, to revile people, to hurt people. Because the only reason they're doing that is because they, they don't have a soul that's valued yet. They don't have a soul that's loved. And they're empty. And so if you'll hold on to that, if you'll strengthen yourself and be entrusted, entrust your soul to the faithful Creator and know that it was He that first entrusted Himself to God, Jesus Christ, and in doing so, took our sin to the cross. Took my sin to the cross. Bore it. Got rid of it. So that I could die to sin, I could be healed from sin, and I could walk with Him as my overseer, the shepherd of my soul, you and I can continue day by day as He walks with us to entrust our souls to Him and have that beautiful relationship. If you need that, you can come as we stand and sing.